This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you today on this Saturday. This uh, is our 18th consecutive program in which we are primarily discussing the COVID-19 pandemic. When we look at the statistics, you know, it's moved to a little bit to the back page uh, on the news uh, these days. But uh, nevertheless, we need to follow the numbers. Uh, in Connecticut, we have over 43,000 positive cases with over 4,000 deaths. In the United States, there are over 1.9 million documented cases of COVID-19. But here's the big number. We are now over 110,000 dead Americans since March. That is just a huge number that is difficult to comprehend. And we need to be mindful of that because that number keeps going up. And it goes up as we start to loosen things up. Um, we're starting to see the numbers rising especially in certain states, California, Alabama, North Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, among them. The states where the numbers are not going up, New York, New Jersey, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Connecticut. The key one is Connecticut. That's where we live. And as we ease these restrictions, the numbers are, are going to rise, okay? And we have to be willing to pull back. But the statistics are supportive of what our governor has done. Slowly reopen. Oh, people are griping about it. They want to reopen sooner. Can't get it soon enough. But the numbers have been held up here in Connecticut. We have been held safe from that standpoint. You know, among, among the things from COVID-19, we've made some progress. We've learned about ourselves and about things around us. Uh, for example, telecommunications, uh, Zoom meetings. I do a lot of Zoom meetings now. This is great. I don't have to go to meetings in person. I have a meeting scheduled at Notre Dame University this week. It's all done by Zoom and, telehealth and telecommunications. So, again, I don't have to get on a plane, lose time, pay for a hotel, go to a meeting. But where we've made the most progress has been in telehealth, using video and audio secure channels for medical visits for patients. Now, we've been using this in sports for years. And the reason is because we have so many destination patients, as we call them, meaning professional athletes who may come here and then they're on the road. So we've been using telehealth to reevaluate them along the way. Telehealth now has really helped us replace routine visits. By routine visits, I'm talking about these required visits. You have to see your doctor, be evaluated before your doctor can renew your medications, whether it be every six months or every year. In many cases, 
those visits can be supplanted by using telehealth. It also helps for screening of patients. And what I mean by that is if I have a new patient scheduled, it may be worthwhile to do a telehealth visit first to get an idea of what the problem is and possibly order testing to be done before they come into the office so that we could draw some conclusions, even at that first in-person visit. So it's unquestionable that telehealth has really advanced healthcare in this country. Here's the problem. Many insurers, including United Health, are going to stop paying for it. They're saying, well, we we're only going to do this during the pandemic. And uh, with some plans in July, others in September, we're going to stop paying for telehealth. You have to go in person. Huge mistake. Huge mistake, especially for employers, right, and elderly. But let's think about it. A lot of people on Medicare and Medicaid have a hard time getting to the office. They have to arrange transportation. Some have to take public transportation. Some have to leave work or have a loved one leave work just so they can get to the office. With telehealth, you get rid of all that. So it's important that we keep this going. So now you have lost time at work for transporting people and actually lost time at work for an employee. So if I'm at work and I have a telehealth visit scheduled, I can easily excuse myself, go to a private room, get on my phone or iPad or, or laptop, and have a personal visit with a physician without leaving work. So this has been a tremendous effort. So what action are we going to take? What are the listeners of Healthy Rounds going to do? What we're going to do is contact our employers because those are the people who pay for this. They pay for those insurance premiums in many cases. If you're on Medicare, Medicaid, you need to talk to your elected officials and let them know that they need to continue paying for these visits. You might ask yourself, well, why wouldn't they pay for these visits? I mean, it makes too much sense. It makes sense for the doctor. It makes sense for the patient. And what, what's the difference? The difference is by making it harder to get to a doctor, you can then discourage these visits. And that's not what we want to do. I hate to even think that way. But that's the only thing I could come up with. So we need to let our employers, we need to let our elected officials know that they need to continue paying for these visits. Telehealth visits have become an important part of practicing medicine in this country and worldwide. I didn't even bring up the idea of people who are located in rural settings and need a physician and don't have physicians close by, don't have a nearby hospital. So again, these telehealth visits need to remain being paid for and supported by insurance companies. This day in medicine, June 6, 1961, Carl Jung died. Uh, Dr. Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist, and many will know he was the founder of analytical psychology, who, with along with Sigmund Freud, really worked and furthered the science of psychoanalysis. So uh, this is a day we remember that Dr. Jung passed away. One of the things we've also been reading about is the safety of 
anti-malarial drugs for COVID-19. Two major studies were proven to have some fallacies within them and were withdrawn by the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine. Let me explain what this really means. What it means is that they exaggerated the complications of using chloroquine and hydrochloroquine in terms of the danger towards causing death. We know it causes arrhythmias, but the question is how bad is it? What it did not change is the fact that chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine don't work for COVID-19. And it's important that that principle still stands until further studies are done. And further studies using hydroxychloroquine in combination with other drugs are being done now. But these retrospective studies that were looked at did not substantiate the complications from those medications. And we still have a lot more questions about that. With that, we're going to take a short break. We're going to be back with my first guest. We have two guests today. Ms. Megan Moriarty from Old Lyme is my guest. I read an article in the New London Day yesterday uh, about this senior from the College of the Holy Cross and now a graduate of the College of the Holy Cross who faced some overwhelming adversity in her final year of college and really overcame them. And, and I want to get a perspective of a young person on how we overcome loss since we're all facing some level of loss in our lives due to COVID-19. So we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my first guest, Ms. Megan Moriarty. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And uh, my guest in this segment is Ms. Megan Moriarty. Ms. Moriarty um, is a senior and now recent graduate of the College of the Holy Cross, where she majored in Spanish and Caribbean studies and is getting ready to start a position in New York. But uh, the reason we want to chat with her is uh, the fact that she faced a lot of adversity in the last few months. Uh, she is captain of the women's rowing team at College of the Holy Cross. And in January of this year, uh, her whole team was involved in an accident where 11 members of the team uh, were injured and one of her close friends and teammates died in that accident. Um, they went on and she captained the team uh, with the hope of reviving hope for their team and rowing this season, which got canceled due to COVID-19, in addition to her graduation being canceled. And I thought it would be interesting to talk to her. She received uh, the award from the Patriot League for Outstanding Leadership and Character and how she was able to lead her team through this uh, disaster and through this loss. Megan, welcome to the program. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the program. Hi, Dr. Leslie. Thanks for having me. Okay. Let's chat a little bit. I, I, I introduced you a little bit and gave some background to what went on in your life, in addition to actually being hospitalized yourself uh, with injuries from the accident. But 
Can you tell our audience we're all facing some level of loss, uh, loss of freedom? Um, we have lost loved ones due to COVID-19. And you have faced an extraordinary amount of loss over the last several months. Uh, how did you cope with that as a young person? Well, well, first and foremost, I do think that having a strong support structure, whether it be your family, friends, doctors like you, Dr. Alessi, and Stephanie Alessi, um, and just people that you can rely on and be vulnerable with is extremely important. And with that also, seeing the positives and being able to recognize what you do have. So, for example, when I wasn't able to row, I still was able to walk, and I was able to even begin running and biking. And so seeing what abilities I did have rather than dwelling on what I didn't was important for me. And um, I think it could be important also just to do self-reflection and just really think about the positives that you are able to see in your daily lives. Um, Just going outside and being able to have moments to yourself and be thankful for what is present is truly important. Megan, do you feel that uh, participating in sports in general, and in your case in rowing, that that helped you to some degree? Uh, Because we always question a lot of times in school now the value of sports. Should we continue sports programs in high school? Uh, There's always this controversy with finances going on. Um, Do you think that your participation in sports in general and in a team sport like rowing uh, helped you to cope uh, with loss? Absolutely. I think that was one of the major support systems that I mentioned previously was my team and my my um, assistant coach and those athletic directors and administrators who were constantly there. Um, that was really important. And then just the energy release of being able to go to the athletic center and be surrounded by teammates who were also simultaneously grieving, but doing wonderful things together in memory of our teammates who had lost their li- who had lost their lives and those who weren't able to be there. That was um, another incredible thing that I do think brought a lot of power and support to not just me, but to the rest of my teammates and the other Megan, athletes too, for that matter. Well, how are you able to separate out recovering from your own injuries? and trying to help your teammates heal not only from their injuries, but their spiritual injuries? That was a challenge for sure. And I, I do think it required that I be pretty honest with myself and just keep track of where I was every day, whether it be writing notes in a journal or just taking track of my symptoms and seeing how I was feeling. I had to make sure that I prioritize myself a little bit, which I'm not always doing every day. So that was a little bit of a challenge as a captain to put myself first being injured. But I also had to show my teammates, too, that like them, I was vulnerable and I was upset and I was having trouble sleeping and I was going through trauma and I was just so sad. And sharing that feeling with them was 
so important. When I was having a good day, I wanted them to know. And when I was having a bad day, I also felt like it was important that they could see their leader of their team was also struggling too because it's tough. And especially losing a teammate, period, is tough. But then also being there and seeing it or being a part of it is just a whole nother level that I do believe when I was there as the captain, I had to be honest with myself and honest with the girls as to how I was actually doing. Megan, what what advice would you have for others? Uh, a lot of people, uh, young people, older people are facing loss, loss of connection with others uh, due to COVID-19, loss of a job, loss of income. Um, what advice would you have for folks facing loss today? Along with just being honest with yourself and with others, I think, again, just trying to see what you do have, the positives in life, and really capitalizing on the feeling of being thankful. And I know that's really tough, especially when we are facing difficult challenges, but there are positives in each and every day, and we really should go out of our way to try to uncover those and be thankful. The fact that I have the ability to speak and walk and run. That's incredible. And if others can do similarly, I think it would really help them. And just going outside, too. It's beautiful during the summer, especially now. So spending extra time just looking up at the sun or taking walks has also been really important and helpful for me. And I think that it could be helpful for others, too. Megan, thank you. Thank you for spending time with us, and thank you for sharing your personal moments with us um, as inspiration to others. I wish you the best of luck in your future, and thank you again for spending time with us today and for all your leadership. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dr. Alessi. You know, those are the conversations that make me feel hopeful. You know, there are a lot of conversations when we turn on TV, turn on the radio, we start to feel somewhat hopeless. Uh, we see rioting. Uh, we see injustice. Uh, it's conversations like the one we just had with a young person who will be taking over this world from many of those of us who listen and participate in this radio program that make us feel hopeful. So I felt it was important to do that. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Raymond Foley. Dr. Foley's a professor of medicine at UConn. He's a pulmonologist. I really want to get into the problems with COVID-19 and how it affects the lungs and what we could do to protect ourselves. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you and to have as my guest in this uh, half of the program, Dr. Raymond Foley. Dr. Foley is a professor of medicine at the University of Connecticut. He is a pulmonologist, and he's director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit um, at the University of Connecticut and UConn Health Hospital. Um, Dr. Foley, welcome to the show. Hi. Good morning, Dr. Alessi. Um, it's great to have you on. Uh, I, 
I want to get into it. I mean, ostensibly, when we think of COVID-19, we think of pulmonary injury. And, um, and I don't know if that's the proper way to approach this, but it seems that the most devastating injury, if we were to cite one specific organ, it would be the lungs. Would that be correct? Yes, yes, that's, the, that's correct. Um, I guess you can think of it perhaps in two terms with COVID-19 as it affects the lungs is perhaps in the early phase, the beginning part of the illness, you can develop a pneumonia. So a direct viral infection of the lungs and the airways. Um, and then subsequently, we think that perhaps there's an intense inflammatory reaction that develops a week or so after the initial infection from the virus. And that intense inflammation can then lead to a lot of, again, inflammation, a lot of perhaps destruction to the lung substance. And that leads to a condition of what we call acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. So when we think of this inflammatory response, typically we think of it as a good thing, right? I right. mean, it is try it's our body's ability to fight the virus. It, right. At what point does it turn to be a bad thing? Well, it's almost as if the immune system is over-exuberant. It's working too hard in some patients and in some cases, and that is the, it's almost like it's revved up too much. And so that the immune system then attacks, if you will, various parts of the body, again, including the lungs, but also other organs, perhaps the brain and the kidneys and the heart, um, blood vessels. And so it's, it's, we, we have definitely seen this in certain patients, that they've had this inflammatory response it's almost as if the immune system has gone awry. And we think that perhaps patients in that setting may benefit from anti-inflammatory therapy. So how do we, first of all, know who those people are? Is there a way of trying to identify? Because obviously in people who are asymptomatic carriers or people who get the virus and have no symptoms, Right. We have to assume that their inflammatory response was appropriate and sufficient to destroy the virus. Is that correct? Right. Yes. So, so how do we, how do we know who those people are? Are those the the people who are going to be more susceptible? Are those the people yeah. who have pre-existing conditions? Well, we think that could be potentially um, potentially a role. But what we're doing in the ICU is we're monitoring patients. So patients are actually getting blood work every day or every other day and we're looking for specific inflammatory markers and so one for instance is one is called the sedimentation rate or another one's called the c-reactive protein and there's others as well such as the uh, what's called the fibrinogen level and the d-dimer and those are also markers of of uh, what's called coagulation or blood clotting. And when we see those inflammatory markers go up and those blood clotting parameters go up, we have a sense that patients are potentially going to get into trouble and may warrant then additional therapies such as perhaps corticosteroids or another drug called tocilizumab. And then also what we found um, is that blood clotting issues become paramount and that patients may need anticoagulation or blood thinning therapy. Um, with a, like, for instance, a medicine called heparin. Um, so it, it's a great question. And like I said, we've learned about this with the COVID-19 because in a sense, this has been a new disease for the medical community worldwide. And so what's happening, we're learning on the job, if you will, as healthcare providers. And what we've found, both again, here in the U.S., worldwide, and even locally here in our state, is that there's a subset of patients that 
certainly get into trouble, get quite sick, require the ICU, and we're tracking them very carefully. And like I said, for that, that inflammation theme, it's the, the blood tests, those blood markers that we're looking for. And when we see a rise, an exuberant rise in those markers, we know that uh, that pretends trouble. One of the things everybody's concerned about is how to either avoid it. Can I be doing something to put myself in a better situation or am I doing something that puts me in a worse situation? For example, I saw a patient this week who, you know, had severe arthritic changes, stopped taking Motrin, which helped him. Okay, but he stopped taking it because he was afraid it would put him in a bad situation with COVID-19. And, and instead, he was taking Tylenol. So here's a man who is suffering in pain that is, you know, and, and you and I both know that a modest amount of Motrin is certainly not going to hurt him, right? I mean, correct, correct. Yeah. In fact, that was some of the initial concern um, that with when they when we had this virus outbreak was that perhaps NSAIDs, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory right. drugs such as ibuprofen or Motrin, could be problematic. Um, and so that had been debated among medical experts. And then more recent uh, evidence, more recent data suggested that that's not the case. Uh, but we do worry, um, both you and I also, the other hat that I wear is as a pulmonologist. And so, and I know you as a neurologist, treat patients who have other inflammatory disorders and may require other, let's say, disease-modifying agents, right. such as steroids or other special type of biologic medications that help tampen or dampen down the immune system. And those are the patients that really worry me. So people who are on high-dose steroids or people on a drug such as what's called mycophenolate, again, to tampen down the immune system, those patients do worry me. But the typical, yes, that the, the Motrin, that shouldn't be a problem. One of the other questions that often comes up, and, and the term that's been thrown around, is silent hypoxia. And right. It was kind of a new term for me at the beginning of this, and yet it, it awakened me. The article that appeared in the New York Times awakened me to the fact that how measuring pulse oximetry could be key here. Can you explain that whole system to our listeners a little bit and the oh, importance sure. of pulse oximetry? Sure. So um, it's what was really interesting, is, as you alluded to, is that patients in the community were getting sick, they were often at home and may have had perhaps little or no symptoms, maybe a little nasal congestion, sore throat. But when they went to evalu uh, be evaluated or seen by their provider, they had profound reductions in their oxygen levels. And we're like, wow, you know, this, is, this patient presumably is quite sick, low oxygen levels, but they look pretty good. Um, and so we realized that there are patients that, uh, that are out there and that they have low oxygen levels when they get sick with COVID-19. And we think that that's, again, the virus as it works its way from the upper airway, like your nose, works its way down into your trachea or windpipe, down into the air sacs called the alveoli. You start to develop a bronchitis, if you will, then a pneumonia. And so what happens is, again, patients may have little, they may have little or no symptoms, but the, the disease is there. And so pulse oximetry is a way of measuring the oxygen levels in the blood. Um, nowadays, with modern technology, the device has gotten smaller and smaller. They're actually quite modest in terms of how much they would cost. Some insurance companies may cover them. Um, and that you can get them at the local pharmacy or online. 
and they're actually they're quite accurate, and you can uh, assess the oxygen levels. So typically, we like to see oxygen levels 90% or better in the bloodstream. It's like in school, you want the higher the number, the better, right? You want to be an A student. So we like, as, as providers, as docs, we like to see 95, 97, 98%, 100% levels. But when someone has, a, when I hear that they've gotten the device, they're checking themselves at home, the oxygen level is 88%, 85%. I'm like, oh, that patient's in trouble. They, they ought to seek medical attention in the emergency department. We're going to take a short break, and then I want to get back uh, and talk a little bit further with Dr. Raymond Foley. Dr. Foley is a professor of medicine, and he's director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit. Uh, we want to get back. We want to talk a little bit about um, how do we avoid this virus, and what are some potential treatments. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're chatting with my guest, Dr. Raymond Foley. Dr. Foley is a professor of medicine at the University of Connecticut and director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit there. Uh, Ray, a quick question. Now, I wanted to get into a little bit about people are always thinking about what can I do to avoid getting COVID-19 and these pulmonary conditions that you've described. Uh, What should people be doing at this point? Well, I think, you know, at this point, the, the best measure would be to follow our, our general guidelines from the Center for Disease Control, or CDC guidelines, and that would be things such as frequent, frequent hand washing. Um, that's, that's probably number one. Number two would be to, if we can, try to avoid crowds. That's one of the big things, again, nationally and in the state. You've seen where the governor, we've, they've tried to limit the accumulation of lots of people in one spot, because invariably there's people out there who are sick, whether they realize it or not, who could potentially pass the bug, the germ on to other people. Um, So avoiding crowds. When we do go out, uh, please wear a mask. Uh, The mask is important. We initially thought, yes, the mask was helpful to try to prevent me from getting the infection, and it, it may have some protective effect for ourselves. But it's quite important to try to prevent passing the bug on to other folks. So if we all wear masks, uh, we can really limit the spread of the virus. Um, so that would be, that would be the main, main ones, Dr. Alessi, is hand-washing, avoiding crowds, wearing a mask. Um, certainly if you're not feeling well, I would think get to see your provider right away. Don't linger. Don't stay at home and try to tough it out because we know that this, with this COVID-19 disease, things can get worse and it can get worse quickly. So if you're not feeling well, please contact your provider and get checked out. Uh, I've got a tough question for you. And this one is, uh, what have we done right and what have we done wrong in these few months? And I'm, I'm thinking about that from the standpoint of as an intensivist, not necessarily just at UConn, but in general, the intensive care community, uh, which you certainly represent, uh, right. these are providers who provide this. What are the things we did right, and what are the things we need to do better? Because I think we all know it's coming back in the fall. To some degree, it will be here. It's not yeah. gone away and vanished. But what do you think? What, what, what would be your opinion on what we did right and what we need to do better? Well, I think you, that, you know— Reflecting on the past few months, I think what we've done right is that we've had a great teamwork approach, 
really throughout the ICUs throughout the country, hospitals, emergency departments, the doctors, the nurses, the nurse practitioners, uh, PAs, everyone has worked together as a team. I should also mention respiratory therapists as well. Everyone has worked together as a team and have stuck together, worked hard and taken care of really sick patients. There's no question about it. They've been extremely sick. Some of the sickest, even in, I've had a 20-year career, and uh, from what I've seen, these have been perhaps some of the toughest, sickest patients. So I think the fact that um, we responded rather quickly as well. So the teamwork, also our, our local, um, both on a state, uh, on a state and on a local level here in the Hartford area and our own individual hospitals, we've really been nimble and responded quickly when it became apparent. Because remember, we first found out about this disease, this new disease, back in January, the beginning of January. Right. But then it hit Connecticut roughly in about mid-March. And so I think, you know, up until that point, we perhaps were somewhat complacent, uh, both, again, nationally and perhaps locally. But then we actually, once we realized cases were presenting here in the U.S., people were getting sick, we really ramped up quickly. So I think it was that, that administration standpoint, the planning, the organization. Uh, again, you can think of it on a state level with perhaps shut, when we shut down services, limited amount of people getting out, going outside. So our, our local health care organizations working hard, um, that teamwork approach that I mentioned. And so I think we really, we were dealt a tough blow, but we really, were, I think, worked successfully. Unfortunately, there were some, there, unfortunately, some uh, patients who, despite our best, mef, uh, best efforts, did pass. Um, and, and that's a very, very unfortunate. Uh, but I, I think overall the positives would outweigh the negatives. So what are things that perhaps we could have done better? As I wonder, as a nation, we were somewhat flat-footed, and that was that we perhaps we took our eye off the ball. Um, we, for instance, um, again, on a national level with the Centers for Disease Control and the experts and uh individuals, professionals that are out there on the front lines looking, surveilling for these type of things happening in the world, that perhaps we could have maybe even responded a little bit quicker with shutting down and social isolation and trying to contain the uh, spread of the, of the virus. We also, as a country, perhaps took our eye off the ball where we stopped making personal protective equipment and medical devices. And, and that's what I wanted to get to. So yeah, let's, you know, I think that right. was one, that's a big one because when we really, again, when we initially, when cases started, uh, especially in New York, they were flooding the emergency departments, lots of patients coming in, uh, staff, doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, we d perhaps didn't have enough PPE, the personal protective equipment. And a lot of that stuff, Dr. Leslie, was made outside of this country. Uh, so we had to, again, ramp up remanufacturing uh, that type of stuff here in the United States. So I think that was a potential drawback. Will we have enough uh, come fall? I mean, we're not taking our eye off the ball now. So will we have enough PPE? Um, and and I guess, will we have a potential treatment, you think, by the fall? Yeah. Um, so I, I think we're doing better with the PPE from what I've been told. And again, what I can see here, again, at our own hospital at UConn, but also in the Hartford area with my colleagues 
at St. Francis and a Harford Hospital and Hospital Central Connecticut. I think overall we're doing better, and I think, again, on a federal level, people are realizing we need to start making this material, getting our medicines and our equipment, getting that in line here locally. I guess it's that old expression, right, by American. We should <laughs> produce here in America. Um, so that's that's one of the things. And I think in terms of treatments, again, what's really been beneficial is for, um, I know at UConn what we've been utilizing is the convalescent plasma, and then also just recently released the antiviral drug called remdesivir. So those are two therapies that have been shown to be effective in patients who've been affected with COVID-19. Dr. Foley, I want to thank you. Uh, I thank you not only for all your expertise and sharing that with us today, but for you and all your colleagues who were on the front lines throughout this and will most likely be back on the front lines come fall. Um, yeah. Thank you for your time today. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Alessi. I appreciate it. That was Dr. Raymond Foley, who is director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Connecticut. Um, and and a lot is going on, and we will continue to bring you this information as things move forward. Uh, a lot more information coming out about vaccines and testing and the availability of testing, uh, which has become more available. Many thanks today to our studio producer, Mike Olko, and Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week on Healthy Rounds, I'm going to be talking with Dr. David Grew. He is from St. Francis Hospital. We're going to talk about getting back to treating patients for conditions that they may have not taken care of while they were focused on COVID-19 and getting back to a regular system of getting treatments. If you missed any part of today's program, you can get it on the Healthy Rounds podcast, which you download from iTunes. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.